If you have a Bible on you, why don't you grab it now? Uh, otherwise, the words will appear on screen behind me. If you're joining us at home today, the words should appear on screen so that you can read along with us. Today, we are in Acts chapter 8. We're in verses 26 to 40, following on from uh, verses 1 to 25 that we were reading through last week. So Acts, 20, Acts 8, verses 26 to 40, and this is God's word. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said. Unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is the water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. And we thank God for his word that still speaks to us today. So if you've been with us over the last while, you'll know that one of the things that we're, we're doing right now and we've really wanted to do is to, to walk our way through the book of Acts, right? It's one of those books, it's, it's really quite long, it's very dense, there's loads going on. It's incredibly important to the life of the church, but somehow we seem as a church very often to not make our way through the whole book. We look at it and go, well, that's long. So we break it down into six sermons and we say, well, here's Acts, right? But Acts is a massive narrative. And so the plan has been that we're going to read through all of the book of Acts together. We realize that's a big undertaking, right? When I first sent out the plan, the kind of preaching plan to people, it was like about 35 sermons. And everyone was like, no, we cannot do that. That is far too long a sermon. Everyone will check out. So we've broken it down into blocks of five and we are in into the second block of this particular series. And in this block, okay, the first block really represented features of that first church in Jerusalem. What were some of the things about it, right? The second block represents features of a church who were scattered, but somehow in the scattering lived as if they were sent. They get scattered, right, towards kind of Act 5, Act 6. All of a sudden, the church is scattered away from Jerusalem. But somehow, though they're scattered, they live as those who were sent. This is the church alive in the surrounding areas to Jerusalem. Last week and this week has really been all about the divide, right? 
Last week and this week has been all about the divides that have been crossed. Last week was about the sectarian divide, okay, to use terminology that we know well in Northern Ireland, the sectarian divide between the people of Jerusalem, the kind of Jews, and the Samaritans, right? How they didn't like each other, and somehow Philip, who gets scattered, somehow manages to cross that divide with the message of Jesus. And this week, really, we're talking about the cultural divide. We're talking about the cultural divide. A number of years ago, I was on a megabus traveling back towards Glasgow, okay? And bizarrely for me, I was the first in the queue at Stirling bus station, uh, which meant that as the driver opened the doors, I got on the bus first, and I was going to be the first one on. Great, right? So I, I, you know, you kind of get your choice of where you're going to sit. That's great. I make my way about halfway up the bus and decide, right, I'm going to sit here, chuck my bag and the thing above me. And I'm like settling down, you know, doing that thing. You're browsing your phone. You're kind of, right, it's about two hours, two and a half hours or whatever ahead of me, right? Now, at this stage, I am the only person on the bus, right? It's just me. And the next person gets on the bus. And that next person decides in an empty bus that he will sit right beside me, right? There's like 50 spare seats and he sits beside me, right? I mean, there's etiquette about this sort of thing. Like men, when you visit the urinals, there's etiquette, right? You don't just go next to that person. You have to obey the etiquette. This guy gets on the bus, right? Like it's now just me and him on the whole bus and he sat beside me, right? And I should say, you know, the bus remains about half full for the duration of the journey and he never moves. He just sits beside me, right? So I'm already like, who is this weirdo, right? So he sat beside me. Anyway, he then shakes my hand, okay? And it was like massive, right? His hand was massive. It was kind of like a mixture of stone and leather and bad life choices, right? Like huge hands, big, heavy, weathered hands. I'm being polite here too, but he smelt heavily of the sea, right? That's all I'm going to say. He smelt strongly of the ocean and diesel fumes, right? I am being polite, and let me tell you, that is a potent combination when it sat beside you for approximately three hours, right? So the guy's beside me. Anyway, he starts to talk to me, and I understand about three words, okay? It becomes apparent that he's from Eastern Europe, but somehow he's picked up like a strong Scottish twang, so like, I can understand nothing at this point, right? So I'm like straining to hear him whilst making repeated attempts at, at the universal symbol of I don't really want to talk, which are putting your earphones in. You know that thing where you're like... You know, putting your earphones in. Not really paying attention to any of my, my kind of movements, right? But he keeps hitting my arm, and he wants to tell me more, right? And he's telling me about his, his story and all the rest. Turns out he's a fisherman, hence the smell of the ocean. And he's just spent months at sea, right? He sat at home for a while. And over the three hours, right, he tells me about fish that they've been catching, tells me about strong seas that he's had to work through, whether he's fought, cold he's endured, and, so, and how he so longs for home. The bus stops eventually when we get to Glasgow. We both get off again, by the way. He's that guy that waits for everyone else to get off the bus before we get off, right? We get off the bus, we go our separate ways. I never see that guy again. And at the time, it was kind of like a whirlwind, right? You know, one of those experiences that's like, what on earth is going on here? But sat on the plane, I was flying home from Glasgow, sat on the plane that evening. I just couldn't help but think how different 
our lives were. Like they couldn't have been any more different. There was so little about his life that I was able to relate to and connect with. We were so very different. I just nodded politely throughout as he spoke, his stories, the way his life worked, his cultural differences, language, everything, right? I mean, this guy lives on a boat. I boke after about 35 seconds on any boat, right? There was no similarities whatsoever between this guy and me. Culturally, we were about as far apart as it's possible to be. And I say that because today's scene, where we're with Philip and an Ethiopian eunuch, today's scene is very much like that. Worlds apart, miles apart, divided, deeply divided. Ethiopia at the time was considered quite literally as the ends of the earth, right? As a place, that's how it was considered in the kind of Jewish church of the time, the ends of the earth. Hi, where are you from? I'm from the ends of the earth is what they heard whenever this story was recounted. On top of that, he's more than likely black. He's a eunuch. They are miles apart, divided. We've went from last week with the sectarian divide to this week and massive cultural divide with somebody from the ends of the earth. Last week where we were talking about masses of people coming to know Jesus to this week where it's a story about just one. See, this section of Acts is all about expansion across some of the most significant borders of the world of that time. How do they, how do, they do it, right? Like as somebody that's been around church work for a great many years, we're constantly listening to places, what they've been doing, how they're bearing so much fruit, their stories, what are the techniques, what are the models, what can we learn, how do they do it? And right now we're watching a church scattered across some of the most significant borders that existed in the world of that time. What are some of the features of a church like that? Well, today I want us to see two things that are going on in the passage, and they are following and pursuit. Following and pursuit. The first of those is following. I want us to see following in this church. At nearly 11 years into our marriage, it's taken Joy and I about this long to work out that when it comes to directions, we have a very different way of seeing the world, right? You see, whenever I am traveling, if Joy asks me, how do I get to whatever it is, right? I've worked out that I'm, I'm actually quite a, quite a visual memory of where I go, right? So normally I, I will describe the way there by things like landmarks, right? Things you will see, okay, you will be going down the road and the ocean will be on your left, you will pass a large tree, the Europa Hotel will be there, like whatever it is, right? I tend to describe directions by visually what you see along the way, all right? I generally observe things while I'm driving. Joy, on the other hand, observes absolutely nothing while she is driving, right? Like zero. Like just about every member of our family and friends have at some point been beside her in their car while Joy is in our car. And she has never, ever seen them, right? She just never looks up. She is driving and she's focused on the driving, right? But somehow she knows street names, like loads of street names, way more street names than me. So if she wants to know somewhere, we have worked out that I need to say, okay, you go to Talbot Street and it will be on the corner and she will know where that is, right? She just needs names. And after many, many years of arguments that have taken place, Joy usually driving somewhere ringing you, Dave, how do I get here? And I'm like, okay, 
Do you see the large tree? Like, no, that doesn't work for me. And we have a blazing argument over the phone, right? We finally have breakthrough in our relationship, right? We've just decided to look the place up on our phones now and not talk about it, right? That's how we do it now. That's how we get places without arguing. Because direction is hard, isn't it? As someone tries to give you direction, it's very often hard to follow. I mean, never, ever pull over in Donegal and ask how to get anywhere, right? It's like, you know, some farmer that's like, now you see, you go down that road there, and you take the second left and your first right, and then you go down a fair wee bit, and then it's the third right, and you're like, nope, lost, no way I'm getting it, right? Direction is hard. Except, apparently, if you're Philip. Except, apparently, if you're Philip, this is what it said in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out. There it is. This is the same Philip we were talking about last week. He's an Hellenistic Jew caught up in the scattering of the church through persecution as it rapidly uh, expands in Jerusalem, the diaspora as it's called. He gets scattered to Samaria, a place where there's real sectarian division from Jews, but there he finds his voice, tells people about Jesus, sees healing, miraculous, the greatest of all, genuine faith stirred up in Samaritans and numerous lives in the city at that time. He was right in the middle of something incredible and yet an angel of the Lord appears to him, speaks, he listens and now he's off. 60 miles from where he was approximately. That's how far he had to travel. In those days, that's a pretty long way to just get up and move like that. I say this most weeks whenever we're reading this stuff in Acts because a lot of the time it sounds incredible. But the truth is, it wasn't any easier to follow, get up from the middle of your life and go somewhere else then than it is now. I don't know why so often we have this opinion, like, well, it must have been easier for them to, like, give everything they had. Of course it wasn't easier. It's not any easier to get up and leave everything you're doing to go somewhere else then as it is now. Following direction is hard in every generation. Did I really hear that? Surely not. No, the Lord didn't say that. I'll weigh and test that one, right? That's the sort of things that we say, isn't it? And on one, thing, one hand, you could kind of say, right? I write, but he got visited by an angel. Of course he went, right? Now, I've never been visited by an angel that I know of. But given that lots of the Bible's examples of when an angel arrives, the first thing the angel says a lot of the time is, do not be afraid. I imagine that if you get visited by an angel, you probably are more inclined to listen to what they have to say, right? And that's true, okay? He gets up and leaves and goes and does what the Lord is trying to tell him to do, right? But the point is this. That's the start of this block of of Scripture. It starts with God's guidance being given by an angel. But then as it goes on, it's just the Holy Spirit speaking to him, and he still goes where he's told. Verse 29, the Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. He does that. Verse 30 and 31, the incredible circumstances of what the eunuch is reading and his invitation to Philip to come and join him in the chariot. Verse 39, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. He does it. Time and time and time again, as the Spirit leads, Philip follows. This is unexpected agency 
into Philip's life in these moments. God is saying, speaking, moving, doing. It comes to him so obviously and so clearly that the Lord is up to something. The whole interaction has God as the engineer, if you will. Like whenever you step back from the passage and you read it again, this whole situation clearly has God at work in the interests of this one life. But Philip, time and again, he follows. Philip follows. There's this reality of the extraordinary and the everyday in this particular part of the passage. The extraordinary and the everyday, right? The verse just before the start of what we've read today in verse 25 says this, after they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. I mean, in the list of things that you think apostles are going to do, right? This is probably one of the things you're like, well, that's kind of normal for an apostle, right? To preach in villages, right? That sounds like the sorts of things they would get up to, but yet the Spirit is still moving profoundly. And then in verse 26, God's leading is in the form of an angel speaking. Extraordinary. From the ordinary to the extraordinary. You see, this passage is the reminder that to follow is to follow into the extraordinary and also into the everyday. To hear God's leading in our lives in the unusual, in the extraordinary, but also in the ordinary and the boring and the everyday, but to follow all the same. You know, sometimes I think that we have like a hierarchy of like God speaking, right? The more extraordinary it is, the more like, oh, we need to pay attention to that, rather than just the nudges that you feel on your way to work. Like, there's just that prompt, you know? You're talking to somebody in the office and you just have that prompt and you think, oh, I need to, I need to do something about that. But we're much more likely to follow the extraordinary, aren't we? Somebody gave me a prophetic word, I should do something about that. Rather than the sense of God speaking himself to you where you are now. There is no hierarchy when it comes to following. Uh, Sandy Miller, who was the vicar at HTB for many years uh, in London, uh, talked often about his experiences of ministry, right? He had been there in the times of John Wimber when the Holy Spirit had been poured out and incredible things had happened and it was a really dynamic time in the life of the church at HTB, like story after story of healing and prophetic word and the miraculous and just incredible things in the life of the Church of England at that time. And he was invited from the Church of England to the Church of Scotland uh, to, to do kind of a one-day thing with their leaders uh, on the Holy Spirit, okay? And you have to imagine he's just come from this incredibly dynamic environment where there's incredible stuff going on to go to a gathering of Church of Scotland ministers. I have been to gatherings of Church of Scotland ministers. Dynamic is not the word that I would use most of the time. So he does his session. I say that, I mean, with the greatest possible respect also to Church of Scotland ministers. We love you dearly. Anyway, he goes to this conference, right? He does his, you know, as he says it, he preaches his heart out on what the Holy Spirit does and he's rooted it in a biblical basis. He's telling story after story about stuff that's literally just happened like in the weeks before and as he gets to the end he asks you know would you like me to pray for the Holy Spirit to come and like one very stern quiet voice says we do and so he prays for the Holy Spirit to come Sandy Miller describes that what happens over the next hour is absolutely nothing like as far as he's concerned there is nothing going on he's feeling guilty inside himself he's like these guys have invited me to come and talk about the Holy Spirit nothing is happening like I have blown it right nothing eventually he kind of is like well I feel like I should probably wrap this up now and get out of the sheer awkwardness of the fact that we're just sat in a room in quiet with nothing going on so he closes it gets out of the room gets out of there 
over the next week. Letter after letter after letter after letter from ministers that were in that room that day, describing the most profound encounters with Jesus and the most profound life-changing things that came from that day. Because sometimes it happens in the extraordinary and sometimes it happens in the everyday. Sometimes it happens in the kind of lights and lightning and the stuff that feels like it's electrically charged and sometimes it feels like nothing is going on. But the Holy Spirit moves the same, and we follow the same. One of the incredible things about Philip's following, you know, is not just that he followed again and again and again. It's the nature of where he's called to. Verse 26, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. He's called to a road, right? He's just called to a road. Philip has been involved in the most incredibly fruitful period of ministry in Samaria, and yet God calls him here. Like the place he's called him to is no place, right? It's literally nowhere. It's a desert road. God seems to lead through imprecise direction, but what he asks for is clear obedience. And that's the wonder of the Holy Spirit leading, right? that he leads us where often we would not ordinarily go. The point is, if we just went where we wanted, right? We would only go our way when it suits us, when we want, when it doesn't cost us, and when it's easy. But God's desire means that God's heart equals new possibilities. The Holy Spirit leads us places we would never go. There's no way Philip, from the middle of what he's doing in Samaria at that time, leads to, leaves to go to a desert road, right? No chance. Nobody would do that unless the Spirit is leading. And the thing is that new possibilities is what the road is, isn't it? New possibilities are where the road is. The road is always the in-between space, isn't it? I don't know about you, I love a car journey, right? My favorite parts very often of deciding we're going to go to the North Coast for the weekend or whatever it is. One of my favorite bits is always the journey because there's always life in the journey. I know I've got two kids, so often some of that life is unwanted, right? Screaming, complaining, all of the rest. But the other side, right, the good stuff. Very, if you've been around youth groups and things like that in your lifetime, you will know that so much of the life is in the journey, isn't it? It's in the car journey to the conference. It's in the busload of young people going away for the church weekend. The life so often is in the road between past and future, between origin and destination. And when you think about it, Luke in his gospel has already shown us a Jesus who was comfortable with roads, right? A savior who really didn't have a home, who never despised the journey or the fact that he didn't have a base of operations. Like when you think about it, the savior, the, you know, the king of heaven, Jesus himself didn't have a building to operate from. He was constantly on the road. This is what it said in Luke 9. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. One commentator writes this, Jesus' life redefined both home and away. This is a God who will be found on the road. In other words, Jesus is the destination of our travel. Even Jesus didn't have a base to operate from. 
He was constantly on the road. In Jesus, we find our home, our point of reference, the place where our origins and our destinations meet our past and our future. That's just what's happening in this passage today. It continues on. The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. What I love, right, about this is how Philip responds, right? Like, he's been sent to the road, okay, the road. He's just standing there, I assume, I don't know for how long, who knows what that's looked like, but it's a desert road. It's not exactly going to be comfortable, is it? So he's on the desert road waiting for something. What has the Lord sent me here for? I'm not sure, but I'm sure that he did. And now I'm here. What's going on? And then he sees a man from the far side of the world, right? The ends of the earth, the moon, as far as he is concerned. And now the Lord asks him to go near to the chariot. Like, what? But yet he does it. He doesn't stall He doesn't say like, well, hang on, I should pray about this. You know, just figure out if this is actually it. He goes immediately. He responds. You know, sometimes I think that so much of our activity in the Christian life and in the church, right, is bulletin work. And by that, I mean the bulletin that we publish. Well, we don't have a bulletin, but lots of places do. The stuff that we publish a week before we do it. Like we plan and we program, and that's good. We should plan. In our lives, we should plan. We should be thinking ahead. We should be doing that, right? That's good. In the church, that's good. God moves in that. We know that he does. But the thing about Philip and the Acts church as we read and as we continue to move through it is just how responsive they were, how willing they were to move when the Lord spoke. Time and again, they followed And we need that so badly, don't we? When you think about that in your life, we need that, don't we? We need to be a people. We need to be a person that responds as we're led, that follows as the voice of God comes in the mundane and in the extraordinary to us, a people who are responsive when the Lord speaks. We need to be as all in for the things God is doing and just does in our midst as we are for the things that we've already planned. It's a responsive church. Philip was responsive. And yet when he responds, what Philip does is really quite every day, right? I mean, he's had extraordinary visitation. He's went to the road. He's been told to go next to a chariot. Then this kind of stuff happens. And what happens next is really very every day. He just sits beside a man, listens as he asks questions and explains about Jesus, right? That's really all he does. Extraordinary voice, extraordinary responsiveness, ordinary actions. You know, sometimes I look at the wider church in Northern Ireland and think, how on earth does it change? Like, can it change? It's so huge. It's so set. How does it change? And yet, every time I do, and I worry even about this place's future within the context of that church, even uh, I feel that the Lord speaks again and again to me. And I feel that he says the same thing every time. Just keep going. Just look forward. Just look up. Or when I walk through here sometimes, I come in every morning, come in through the back door, walk through here and up into the office every day. And I come through this place from time to time and think, man alive, like how did we ever get here? 
I worry about the people that are coming, you guys. I worry about how this place will ever live into the future, whether, whether we'll ever lead you well enough. I worry about all sorts of stuff. I feel that the Spirit says the same thing. Just keep going. Just look forward. Just look up. And it wasn't until I read this passage this week that it really struck me, right? How everything that we're reading last week and this week, as the gospel crosses the deepest divides to the ends of the earth, it's not just those spaces that get changed, right? It's not just Samaria that changes. It's not just this Ethiopian eunuch who gets changed, right? It's Jerusalem too. What I mean is that the Jerusalem that the apostles have left, it won't be the same when they return. It's about to get a whole lot more complicated. As in time, people from the four corners of the earth will find Jesus and they will come back to Jerusalem, changing Jerusalem in the process. It's not just Jerusalem, but the apostles themselves will get changed by what they experience on the road. This is where what happens at the fringes changes what's going on at the heart. And so it is as we follow God's way in our lives, right? As we go on the road, as we listen to what he's saying, as we learn to follow him into whatever is ahead of us, whatever he has for us, we realize that at some point we can never go back to the old way, can we? Once we have experiences with God, once things happen in our lives, we walk through some stuff with some people or whatever it is, we realize that we can never go back. What has happened on the road changes us at the heart. This is the church alive across cultures, and it's a following church, responsive as God speaks in the ordinary and the extraordinary, responsive beyond its plans, and so too are its disciples. So the question is, what about us? From the very beginning, Jesus' invitation to us, to the disciples then, to us now, that was held out was, come, follow me, Right? It is in our very nature as those who follow Jesus to learn to be a people who follow on. Whether it's to a destination that we want to go to or to a place that is no place, where is he leading in your life? And how willing are you to follow? In a nutshell, Philip's attitude was this, have spirit, will travel. And I would love it if we as a church would be the same as a people might learn to also be a people of have spirit, will travel. Wherever you're leading God, I'm open, I'm following. It was a following church. But secondly, I want you to see that there was a pursuit. There was a pursuit. So we get to the Ethiopian eunuch, right? He's at the heart of this whole passage of scripture. And this is what it says. So he started out and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet, okay? We've already mentioned the significance of the Ethiopian bit, right? He was culturally from the end of the earth, and he held an important position, okay? He was essentially the chancellor of the exchequer, right? That was kind of his job for Ethiopia at that time, right? If you want to um, 
take an example from here, that's what he would be, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. That's who he is. Kandake was the dynastic title for the Queen Mother, i.e. that wasn't her actual name, okay? But that's kind of her title. And often she was responsible for serious parts of what it took to run a country because the Ethiopian king was considered a child of the sun, so he didn't get involved in kind of stuff like this. That was not his thing. He was too high and above all that. So the Queen Mother did some of the serious nuts and bolts running of the country. And that's what's going on here. Cycli, obviously, as we think about him as somebody from Ethiopia, that he was black. And he's just returned from the synagogue in Jerusalem. The thing is this, that could either have went one of two ways, right? He could either have went there and found that it was a wonderful experience, incredible, right? Or else he could have got there only to realize that I am not like them. He could have got there to realize that I am the only one like me, in the midst of all this, it's just me. And we have the race issue here, right? Now, one of the interesting things is that there is little mention of prejudice based on skin color anywhere in antiquity. Actually, in many cases, there was actually interest in it because they were from different cultures. It was like, what can we learn? What can we pick up? What can we kind of do with this? Because they have ethnic and racially distinctive features, there was more likely interest than there was prejudice. It's a bit like Elle, who is fascinated with people who are black, right? She's totally fascinated with it. Like if we're out anywhere and there's a black person there, whether that's a meeting, like a waiting room, uh, a bus stop, on a bus, in a restaurant, whatever, she will say at the top of her voice, look daddy, look at their brown skin, right? And I'm like, I'm about to get cancelled, right? Belfast pastor cancelled due to racist child, right? I can see the headlines here, right? She will say it at the top of her voice, but then what will happen next is she will say just as loudly, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And it's likely that that was the nature of how people were treated if they were people of distinctive racial features of that time. But whether they were treated with prejudice or whether they were treated with interest, there is no doubting that he would have been aware of his difference. And even more so, right, was the fact that he was a eunuch It was not uncommon for men in high Near Eastern government positions to be castrated, right? Because the bottom line was that it prevented them from getting royals pregnant and then making claims to the throne, right? It was a practical measure. It meant that they were safe to be around if in the case like this, the queen mother who was running the treasury, right? It makes sense, therefore, to make sure that none of the men have the mechanics to make a claim to the throne, right? That was the deal. However, the term eunuch, okay, it appears frequently through the Bible, but often not perhaps how we think it might, okay? Often it was used to describe high-ranking military or political positions. For example, in the story of Joseph, you have Potiphar. But Potiphar, the word in that, okay, uh, is for officer or official. That word, eunuch. It's the same word. In other words, some of these men weren't necessarily castrated. However, that's one side of the coin. The other side of the possibility of who this man was, was that he had been castrated to serve a leader. One commentator writes this, the eunuch is the ultimate slave, one who has tremendous power and is close to royalty, yet is not a man in the ancient sense of having phallic authority to penetrate rather than being penetrated. Well, that was graphic. Bet you didn't think you were going to hear that in church this Sunday, right? 
In other words, he is so bound to slavery that his body has been altered. He is so bound that he is just a body in the slavery of a king. And if that was him, right, the temple experience would have been a difficult one. Deuteronomy 23, which is some of the ancient ritual laws and codes, it said that a man who had been castrated could not participate fully in Israel's worship. In other words, culturally, he was on the outside. If he didn't already know he was on the outside, then he very definitely knew he was on the outside now. If it was possible, this man could not have been more culturally far off from the Jewish culture of the time. He is the outer boundary of what they were talking about. It's him. You'll be aware that at the start of Acts, in that passage we read in the first, first week of this series, right? You will go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. In other words, we're here in Acts 8, and we are at the very ends of the earth right now. But here's the thing. That's not the end of the story, because God was in pursuit, First of all, Philip is sent to the road, right? He's given clear direction. I mean, the middle of nowhere. Why on earth would someone who has been participating in such fruitful ministry elsewhere be sent here if not for this man? And then, right, just think about this next line, okay? The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip. Philip to come up and sit with him. It's a setup, right? I mean, it couldn't be any more obvious in terms of the mechanics that have taken place for this to happen. Just think about how extraordinary the timing is of this whole incident, right? He gets sent to the road, any road. He doesn't, he's not sleeping when the chariot goes past. He's not decided he needs to go and eat or do something else. He's there when it happens. The Lord prompts him, go to the chariot. He goes to the chariot, and right as he arrives at the chariot, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading from the prophet Isaiah, which he recognizes, knows what it is, then asks the guy a question, and the guy invites him up on the chariot and he then leads him to faith in Jesus. I mean, just think about the timings of it all. It's extraordinary, isn't it? It's extraordinary. I mean, you've got to bear in mind as well that it's likely that Philip wasn't the only one running along beside the chariot, right? This was a wealthy person on a chariot in a desert road. There were likely other people begging, asking for help and somehow in the midst of it all, he makes out that he's reading the prophet Isaiah and, he, and the eunuch hears Philip when he asks the question. It's incredible, right? It's incredible. God's sending of Philip, God's timing. And when we get into it, the eunuch really essentially asks three questions, right? One verse 31, can you help explain this to me? I don't understand what's going on. And then in verse 34, he's essentially asking, who is this person in pain and suffering, humiliation and shame? Why does he ask that? That might seem obvious to us now. But then in those days, there's no evidence that anybody of any description had any idea that that the Messiah, when he came, would be one who suffered and suffered humiliation. All they saw was the triumphant king coming. So of course he didn't understand. But Philip did. And that was his moment to tell him about Jesus. 
And then in verse 36, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? Here's the thing. If you've asked who Jesus is and found out who he is and what he's done, then this is the obvious next question. What could get in the way? Answer, nothing. And he gives his life to Jesus. And he gets baptized that day. Here's the thing. This is so obviously a pursuit, wasn't it? Like when you think of all the moving parts that had to come together just to make this happen, it was so obviously a pursuit. Given my recent successes in DIY, um, which I've been journaling with you, you know, I tried to fix a, a light switch, you know, a pull cord light switch in my bathroom the other day, which I decided to die. Little did I know at the sheer complexity of the insides of a pull cord light switch, right? I also didn't really think it through very well because when I tried to take it apart, it's obviously got a spring and it just went to every corner of the bathroom, right? However, after much Googling, I did manage to put our pull cord light switch back together and now it works, right? But how would I ever have known that something that you don't even think about, right? You walk into the bathroom and go, click, and the light comes on. Could possibly be so complicated, right? All the things that need to happen inside it just to make the light come on. And how much complication, how many moving parts could there be just to lead this one man to Jesus? It's a pursuit, and it happens to lead this man to Jesus. The circumstances that lead to this conversion are incredible, so incredible, in fact, that when it comes to the conversion itself, it's like Luke just kind of skips by it, right? It sounds like any leading to faith that could happen on any Alpha course at any place at any time, right? He just explains to him about Jesus. Guy gives his life to Jesus. There's nothing else mad, stranger, unusual going on. And that's because God had pursued this man precisely in his difference and exactly into the complexities of his life. He matters. Not because of who he's close to. There's no strategy here, right? This is not because he might be an influence, right? It's not because he's a pawn in this game. He matters because he matters. And that's why God does what he does. I sometimes wonder, you know, if that day, as Philip opens up the scroll, okay, because he's reading from the prophet Isaiah. That's what the passage says. He doesn't quite understand what it is. If you turn your Bibles to Isaiah 53, you'll see that that's what he was reading there, right? I sometimes wonder if whenever he opens the scroll and he goes, well, look, you know, you see what this is. This is, it's talking about Jesus. And he starts to explain about the cross, right? That this was the very passage Jesus himself used to help explain to others that this is who he was in the gospel accounts, right? I sometimes wonder if he flicked on a little bit from where he was in Isaiah 53. Obviously, it wouldn't have been laid out the way we have it now, but read on in the scroll, just unraveled it a bit further to a bit further down to say, but you see here, these are words for you. And this is what it says in Isaiah 56. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. I sometimes wonder if that day with that scroll, as he looks at the first bit, he says, look, this is who Jesus is. 
this that you're reading. This is about Jesus, and this is who he is. And then he scrolls on a little bit and says, but this is who you are. This is who you are. This is the wonder of this moment, whether he read it to him that day or not, that there was a new future promised exactly for him. And that is the same truth that comes to us today, that there is a new future promised exactly for you, where your origin and your destination meet, where your past and your future meet. See, Jesus has broken the connection between your identity and your destiny. That's what he's saying here. He is pursuing you like he pursued this man all of those years ago. And when he finds you, your future is open-ended. So open-ended, in fact, that as this passage goes on, he doesn't even let Philip stay. This is what it said. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. I love this, right? Because this is a reminder that though disciples need guides, right? And we all need guides as followers of Jesus, right? First, we need to know our freedom. It's a reminder that though we need guides, first we need to know freedom. God doesn't let Philip stay and fill in all the blanks for what happened. You need to do this, you need to do that, and you need to tidy this up and don't act like this anymore, right? He doesn't let him stay and do that. He sends him on, right? He doesn't fill in the bits for the life script. He doesn't let Philip hand him his life script as so often we are tempted to do. You know, a remarkable number of the encounters with Jesus that we see in the Gospels do not end with him spelling it out for them next. They end with them expressing their joy. God is in pursuit and he is pursuing you today. Wherever you are, whatever you've been through, whatever your past looks like, whatever your origin was, whatever you think your identity is, Jesus has broken the link between your identity and your destiny. And because of this, if he finds you, You need to know today that he has done enough to break that link. Whether that's family, what they've said and what they've done is not the final word on your life. Whether it could be your past, right? Your choices, your decisions, the things that you've done with your life, the things you've said, what you've given yourself to. They do not have the final say on your life, whether it's your previous relationships, right? Whether you are in a place today and you have felt the rejection of people in the past, It does not have the final say on your life. It could be your work, but that is not where your value is. Who you are and what has been unto you is not your destiny. You need to know first and foremost the freedom that is in Christ alone. Know today that you are free. Before we get on to what you need to do with that freedom and how you need to behave and what you need to believe and all of the nuts and bolts that the discipleship journey truly represents, let's remember today just how free you are. Free enough that a man from the far side of the cultural world might know the God who pursued him to the road and met him there through the following of another disciple. Through the complexities of that moment, free enough to know that though you may feel far off, 
that God might draw you close. The first church in a scattered world, in a divided world, first of all, it was a church that knew following. It was responsive as the Lord spoke. It moved as he said, whether that was in the extraordinary or it was in the everyday. It was a church that knew how to follow. And secondly, it was a church that understood pursuit. That knew that people from the far side of the world might be drawn close through the actions of an incredible God. We're just going to wrap up um, this morning. I'm going to hand over to Hannah and Gillian just to, to lead us in praise. And, you know, it got me thinking through the week, really, about this particular passage. And um, Christopher J.H. Wright, he wrote a massive book on mission, okay? I have read it. I'm not going to ask you all to read it. It's like twice the size of a pew Bible, okay? But it's an incredible book. It's, it's thought to be the book on mission, okay? Uh, and at the heart of it is this single definition of what mission means, okay? And this is his definition. Mission is our committed participation as God's people at God's invitation and command in God's own mission within the history of God's world for the redemption of God's creation. That's quite complex, right? Here's the thing whenever you break it down. This is God's mission. What we are called to here in Belfast and wherever else the Lord might lead us in our lives, it is his thing. He sets it in motion. He supplies the resources. But more than that, it is his heart, right? Mission in Wright's definition, if you really want to kind of simplify it, is basically God's repeated stepping towards us. God's repeated stepping towards us us with everything he has from the narrative of the Old Testament through to Jesus through to his returning again it is God's repeated stepping towards us and so there are two things we can do with that because he sets it in motion we need to know that our job is just to follow he is speaking all the time he is leading all the time opportunities are all around us whether we hear them or not whether we see them or not whether we want to believe or not whether God is speaking to you today in the extraordinary or whether it's just the ordinary every day of what you will be going home to this afternoon or what you will be going into work to tomorrow morning God is speaking and leading all the time it's his thing he is consistently and constantly stepping towards us human beings if only we would follow we could participate in that we need to be a following people I just had this sense as I was working during the week that God is on some of your cases about stuff, about people where there have been prompts, you've been ignoring them, you're waiting for the lightning moment. It may or may not ever come, but God has been on at you in your life to be somebody for somebody else, to participate in his mission. And maybe today is the moment where you're like, okay, I'm in, I will follow. But secondly, maybe today is the day that you need to know that he's in pursuit of you. That this isn't some big, like, amorphous thing out there, right? Mission is not this big kind of thing, right? It's people, and it's people like you. Maybe today is the moment today you remember that he's after you because he's after you because you matter because you matter. This is the final words of Leif Peterson, who's Eugene Peterson's son. 
The final words of his eulogy given at his funeral. It's the same words, apparently, that Peterson spoke over his son throughout his entire life. And this is them. And I think they're from someone, for someone today. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. He is relentless.